Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Uh, welcome to Heard Tell. Uh, you've probably heard tell folks say things like Twitter ain't real life or social media ain't real life. And there's truth to that. We use it in a political context that it is a bit of an echo chamber. It is a bubble. It is a certain small slice of America. Um, only 20% of Americans have a Twitter account. A very, very small amount of those are active folks. And there's data about how much of that is just recycled noise. It's one of the things we do. I love Twitter, but there's a lot of noise there, especially news media noise and political noise and cultural noise. It's something I've long told folks. And the reason I got on Twitter in the first place is because it opened my world up. And there's a lot of good people on there. A lot of those accounts are real people, even though a lot of them are pseudonyms or a lot of them are people putting up a front for either business reasons or ideological reasons. But there's real people on there. Roughly four years I've been on Twitter and writing publicly and now doing media and radio and heard tell and other things. I've been fortunate to meet some amazing people on there. One of them passed away. Patrick Anders, you may not know that name. He uh, was on Twitter under President Dog before that, Patrick Non-White. A lot of people knew him from the Pope Hat blog from years ago. He was a lawyer, brilliant mind. I just knew him more as a friend. We talked about politics and stuff. We became friends online, commiserating over health things. Um, I've had a bit of a complicated health issue way the last few years. In fact, that's what got me on Twitter was when I had some really serious health problems and I couldn't, you know, work the quote unquote real job anymore. And I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do to fill my days. I started writing, got on Twitter and well, you see, I'm here now. Patrick and me, uh, Patrick and I, I should say, um, just let me get through this. We commiserated on that stuff. Uh, we'd spent time in some of the same hospitals. Uh, his health was chronically not good. Um, in fact, the couple times I got to meet him in person, um, you know, he had trouble just walking, um, just doing normal things, but his spirit was indomitable and his mind, I get to work with a lot of brilliant people. Um, some of the smartest people I've ever met because of what I get to do and I'm privileged to do. Um, whether they're academics or lawyers or politicians or commentators, just we, we surround ourselves on purpose with really, really smart people. Patrick was as smart as any of them. Uh, his intellect was amazing. His wit, um, he saw things a certain way. Um, it wasn't just a brilliance, but it was a way to apply 
that amazing mind of his. He, he could be very, very cutting with his wit. Um, he was a classical cynic, and I mean that as a compliment. He just distrusted almost everything and could figure out a way to cut it down to its bare bones in a very, frankly, delightful way in a lot of things when it came to things like politics and phony folks and things like this. And I don't want to belabor the point, but people talk about Twitter ain't real life. Well, that's not true. This wouldn't hurt. A lot of these tributes that you've been seeing from a lot of folks, uh, Ken White from Pope Hat wrote a wonderful one. I'm going to link to it. Please make sure you read his. But a lot of them, and Ken's was one of them, they've been starting out the same on social media and in some of the written ones I've seen of, I never got to meet him face to face. Um, I'm blessed that I did get to um, him and his wonderful wife. And if you haven't heard their love story, uh, please go read her uh, social media posting in the last few days as she works out her grief. Um, you know, he had bad health, but this was somewhat unexpected. And in fact, you know, it was, well, he's in the hospital. We're going to have a procedure. And it was like, well, He's not doing great, but I think he's going to be okay. We'll go. And then all of a sudden was we've lost him. And I kept thinking about how blessed I was to actually get to meet him because all these people talk about, well, we were internet buddies. Uh, we were internet friends. I never actually got to meet him, but we got to talk and how much he affected people's lives, even not meeting him. I am happy to tell you that what you saw and what you saw in those direct messages and on the text messages or however you got to communicate with him when you got him across the table from you with some food in front of you, that's exactly what you got. He was brilliant. Uh, he could be cynical and cutting. He could be extremely kind. Um, he's the kind of guy where him and uh, him and his wife would drive down two hours just to come and eat lunch with me to make sure I was okay. That's the kind of person you're dealing with here. Uh, last night, um, we were doing our Twitter supper club, which has become such a meaningful thing to me and a lot of other folks. And Patrick, of course, joined in on that. He loved food, was a big foodie. And somebody had made a homemade batch of ramen. And I tagged his account on it. And a couple people immediately went like, hey, he died or he passed away or one person DM me is like, uh, he passed away, don't you know? No, I know. Let me tell you the quick story on that. The first time I was supposed to meet him and his wife, uh, we were going to go to this ramen place. He had been talking about it for months. Like when we meet in person, we're going to go to this ramen place. It's a specific one. We're going to go. Um, it's up in Greensboro. We were going to go. And the day comes. I'm all excited. I get about halfway up there. It's about a two-hour drive. I'm about an hour into the drive. And I had an emergency at the school with one of my children. And I had to turn around and go back. And I called his wife. And they were sitting playing a video game, of course, because that's what they did when she was in a lot of the times. And I was just apologizing profusely. And they're like, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. You know, we understand completely, you know, what it is. Take care of your kid. Um. So I never got to the ramen place. Of course, they did what any good Twitter supper club folks would do. They posted very gratuitous pictures of the ramen. <laughs> um, but I was supposed to go eat ramen with him. And we talked about it, and he loved ramen and Asian food specifically. 
So after that, every time somebody had a good ramen or a good Asian dish or anything involving noodles and bowls, I'd tag him on it. And it kind of became a bit of a running in joke. One is because I was, you know, rude and didn't make my appointment, even though I had a very good reason not to with him. And the other was kind of a promise of like, hey, we're going to do ramen someday. We're going to get this ramen in. We're going to do ramen. Uh, and this went on for a while. And of course, him and his wife, they were dating then. They got married. They're, they're a wonderful love story. Um, getting to sit across the table from them. We ate other times. We ate uh, big country breakfast. First time I actually got to meet him in person. Last time I got to meet him, uh, we did Greek here where I live, uh, which was wonderful. Um, if you sat across the table from them, you could just sit and watch how they looked at each other. I told her um, after this happened, we were just messaging. And I was trying to come up with something to say to to try to be, you know, just express how much we were so sorry. And and I told her this, and it's the truth. I was like, for the last you know year or so, it doesn't matter what the conversation with Patrick started out as, if it was political or I'd ask him a lot of legal stuff or things like this, it always ended up the same because we'd talk about her because all Patrick ever wanted to talk about was her. So we didn't get to the ramen. I'll never get to eat ramen with my friend. So last night I tagged that bowl of ramen on purpose. Long as that accounts up, I told people this on Twitter publicly. I'm gonna, he's gonna get his tagged ramen tweets as long as uh, Neva and them decide to leave his account active. My father always says this thing about how the world's lacking characters. There's so many people that are the same. There's so many people that just conform or go along, or they get in their in groups. He taught high school for 35 years and. It was one of his bugaboos is like our school system. We just try to make everybody the same. He'd say that there's not enough characters in the world. There's not enough curmudgeons. There's not enough, you know, oddballs in a good way. Patrick was a character in all the wonderful, amazing ways that word can mean. He was unique. He was whip smart. He would talk for five minutes on something. And all I could think of was, man, I wish I could pull my phone out and Google what he's talking about because I have no idea what he's saying, but it's brilliant. I'm so very blessed to have got to meet one of those online friends in person. I wish we would have had more time. I wish we would have got that ramen. I wish I could help his family's grief more than I am. Uh, I can't do anything but send them messages. And, of course, if they needed anything at all, I'd drive there now. I miss my friend. It's good to see the outpouring of emotion online of how much he meant to people online. Take it as a lesson. Yeah, Twitter ain't real life and Facebook ain't real life, but those are real life people and they are what you make of it. Patrick made it about touching a whole lot of people's lives in really, really good, meaningful ways. We can only all hope to do the same. God bless my friend's family. I look forward to seeing him again soon. We'll do the rest of our regular herd tell right after this. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants. 
They all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome back to Hertel. Uh, you may have heard tell a hurricane has hit Puerto Rico. Hurricane Fiona uh, dropped 30 inches of rain. Of course, the winds and all that on Puerto Rico. Um, it looks like as they start to do the initial cleanup here, this is not going to be Maria. This is not going to have that massive death toll of thousands of people that we dealt with with that. However, uh, it is extensive damage, extensive flooding. For folks that don't know, most of Puerto Rico is very mountainous. So there's some built-in trouble here. Anytime you have floods, you got mountains, you got valleys, flooding is horrible. It's destructive. And we all know from Maria that there's issues with getting aid in and out of that uh, island. Now, here's part of the problem here. People are going to politicize this really, really quick. There's a lot of layers to the political problems when it comes to Puerto Rico. Um, there is all the FEMA relief from the last hurricane five years ago. They spent about 81% of it. This is from uh, the New York Times. Um, as of last month, uh, the island's government had spent only about $5.3 billion or 19% of the $28 billion in funding that FEMA has committed for the post-2017 recovery projects, according to the GAO. Um, a large majority of this spending, this is New York Times, 81%. It's gone to emergency relief, such as debris removal, but considerably less had gone towards permanent work, such as improving of the roads and utilities, infrastructure, not the buzzword, the actual stuff you got to do, like drainage and things like this. Um, Mr. Curry, this is Homeland official, uh, disclosed the figures and testimony last week before a House subcommittee regarding FEMA's work in Puerto Rico since Irma and Maria. He also identified several reasons the recovering had been a slog. Today, some of the good news and why partly the death toll may not be so bad, although the entire island once again lost power. Uh, FEMA had twice the numbers of generators on the island, nine times the amount of water, 10 times the meals, and eight times the number of tarps compared to 2017. That's on the island, and that's the big part because part of the problem is trying to get stuff in and out of there. And once you got it there, uh, the government was having all kinds of trouble distributing it. There's accusations of incompetence. There's accusations of corruption. Let's be adults here. Corruption and incompetence are not new things to the government of Puerto Rico, nor is how America and the federal government has dealt with Puerto Rico, which is sometimes they don't pay attention to them at all. Sometimes they pay too much attention to them. Long story short, uh, if you can help the folks in Puerto Rico, they're going to need it. But what would have really been nice the last five years was to stay consistently holding government both in Puerto Rico and the federal government accountable. Because when you don't hold them accountable, these massive amounts of money, things don't get done, things don't get taken care of, and here we are again. Now, thankfully, again, we're not going to have the massive loss of life as last time, it looks like, but a power grid of an entire island failing is really bad. And folks having to suffer humanitarianly because government is not taking care of their appointed duties is really, really ungood. For some reason, we don't want to learn this lesson. So start today whether you're Puerto Rico or anywhere else, making sure your government's accountable for what they do for disasters. Because once it happens, 
what they did to prepare for it's going to be laid bare. And then it's too late to do anything about it. We'll have further coverage of the Puerto Rican storm. We'll figure out uh, some charity stuff like we always do and post some links for you to help those folks out, pray for them. And we'll be back with more Hurt Tell right after this. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. It's morning as I record this. It's evening where he's at because he's down in New Zealand. Uh, we're really thrilled to have him. Adi Goldship is joining us. He is an economic commentator. He's got a great podcast, uh, the Economic Review Podcast. We'll talk some economics here in a minute with him. He's also a Young Voices contributor. How are you, sir? Thank you so much for the time. This evening for you, morning for us. I'm great. Good evening, sir. It's a pleasure to be with you. I uh, really appreciate it. Let's start here, though, because um, I always like having a wider perspective on these things, an outside perspective. You were writing in the counterpunch about immigration. Now, here's one of those things that when we talk about it all the time, this has become so much buzzwords and so much slogans and so much culture war and so much politics. People forget that immigration, your background's economics. This is actually a real nuts and bolts thing when you turn down all the noise on it. And as you started to highlight, the numbers are kind of startling when it comes to U.S. immigration. And let's just preface this. We're talking about legal immigration here, legal visa holders, legal green card holders. We're going to set the legal immigration southern border. We're going to set that to the side for just a second. These numbers are rather startling once I read through your piece and looked at them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the like you said, the the first thing that we have to remember is that you know behind all the the political rhetoric, immigration is a tool. You know, every every legislature around the world can can use immigration as a tool, and you know, a country like the United States is fortunate enough to have people from all over the world that want to come there and live there and work there. And so, of course, they have to have some sort of immigration policy, um, and it's up to them. It's up to the legislature, up to Congress, to make sure that they use that as a tool in the most effective possible manner um, to to improve the well-being, the lives of the people uh, of its own citizens. And currently, it's not doing that. And we just learned through the COVID shutdowns, when we had all the shutdowns, and of course, travel restrictions and things like that. One of the reasons these economic numbers don't make sense to people, because it doesn't make sense how you have a labor shortage and low unemployment both. There was an almost no immigration for almost two years and very little immigration. And it blew a hole into the labor market, especially the service sector labor market, where a lot of those folks enter the U.S. economy. We got data now that kind of a buildup on top of it. And you highlighted in your piece things weren't well before that. I, I almost fell over reading this and it takes a lot to shock me. You said if the barring extensive reform to immigration policy, it's on pace to take almost two centuries to complete the backlog on green card applications. Can that number even be right? And that was before COVID's just showing how bad this is. It was already like this. Is that right? You know, um, like you said, there's there's been a massive problem with COVID. Um, here in New Zealand, um, we have a similar problem. We have two um, for for every for every unemployed person, we have two job openings. So there's a, a massive problem with um, labor shortages, and especially in certain skilled professions like, um, you know, engineers, software developers, certain specialized STEM fields, especially, there's a massive, massive labor shortage. And 
the the best bet that the U.S. has to fix that is immigration. Um, there's there's no way that they're going to be able to fill that with domestic um, with domestic workers just because enrollment rates, you know, especially programs like electrical engineering, they've been declining over the past two, two decades as demand has been soaring for people who are skilled in those sorts of professions. So that's the first thing. And the second thing you mentioned was the 196 year backlog. Um, so the the way the, the U.S. currently processes these um, H-1B uh, applications. So once you get your H-1B, your, your um, work visa, then you sort of get in line to get your green card. And depending on what country you're from, you go in sort of different brackets. So if you have, um, if you're a very high skilled employee, you have a master's degree or, you know, 10 years of work experience, something like that or more, you go into the EB2 category. If you don't have those sorts of skills, you go into the EB3 category. And that's where you get extremely long waiting times, especially if you're an unskilled, you know, and the way they define unskilled is just, you know, you don't have a master's degree. So you could have a bachelor's degree, you could be qualified in your field, but you'd still be unskilled to them. Um, and so those people were waiting, you know, 196 years to that, that's at the current pace. It's absolutely absurd. Yeah. Let's do some of the nomenclature here, because one of the ways you get away from the buzzwords is this is legislative. There is black and white law involved here for folks that maybe aren't familiar. Let's just make sure everybody's on the same song sheet here. Talking high skill labor, STEM stuff, things like this. It's H-1B visas. Just for folks, everybody knows what we're talking about. Explain the H-1B visa program, because that's another one of those where it's become a buzz where people throw around. I'm not sure people really understand how it works. Yeah, it's confusing to understand if you haven't been through it yourself, um, just how convoluted the entire system is and, and how complicated it is. So the way most people come to the, the United States if they want to work here, um, especially from places like India and China, they come here as students, um, you know, undergraduate or, or postgraduate. They come here, they, they get their degree. And after that, um, they're eligible to work in the United States through something called uh, OPT. And that gives them the ability to work for one to three years in the US. Once they get hired by an employer, they can sponsor them for what's called an H-1B visa. That's basically a, a work visa. So your visa is, as, is good as long as you're employed and your employer sponsors you. And eventually um, your H-1B visa, after you've been on it for a certain amount of time, um, depending on what country you're from, there's a delay between the time you get your work visa and the time you get your green card. Your green card is your permanent residency. So after that, you're no longer dependent on your employer. You can be fired, you can switch jobs freely. Um, your your visa status is no longer tied to your job. And so that's sort of the, the, the pipeline. And then after you've been on your green card for, I think it's five years, um, you become a citizen. Now, this is something that's controlled by Congress. You touch on it in your piece. Um, they set the levels on these things. The problem is we understand this is a hot button political issue. They should be adjusting it. We just had the census. So we know the data numbers. We just had COVID, like we said. We know there's economic holes to be filled here. But they're not adjusting these numbers as time goes on. And at least they're not adjusting them to keep up with the current situation economically as it exists on the ground. When you look at things like the census that you talked about, us not being able to fill these workers any other way. Look, economics, when you get down to it, it's a math discipline. There's some hard math here. We don't have enough workers for the size of the economy we need. We're not producing through the birth rate enough future workers. This is really a math problem when you get down to it. And then that needs to be the policy focus instead of the other way around where we're looking about is like, oh, well, we want U.S. jobs. That's a fine thing. But the math don't match up. Yeah, exactly. And at a certain point, you're you're not going to be able to domestically fill those jobs. There are just not enough people skilled in that profession in the United States. And, you know, the, the shortage is so, so severe that even if you start to push people into STEM careers, that's going to take decades before it materializes. And even even then, it's, you know, at, at the cr current trajectory, you could 
you could double them, you still wouldn't be able to keep up with China or, or um, you know, many of our, our foreign policy rivals. So there's there's absolutely an essential reason why you need immigration here. That's that's um, you know un undoubtable. And like you said, illegal immigration that's a whole different story. But as far as legal immigration goes, Congress has that in its control, and it hasn't adjusted those levels in literally decades. And you know the 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 limit on how many H one B visas can be issued every year, the the limit on um, you know, the, the number of people that we let in, those haven't been adjusted in decades. Our population has increased significantly. Um, the, the, the number of jobs has increased significantly. All those sorts of things are increasing and yet immigration just isn't keeping pace. You can't keep levels at 1990 levels and expect that everything will keep running smoothly. Yeah. And let's have an adult conversation about this real quick, because China is one of those things people want to bring up about, you know, that's a competitor. That's the economic competitor to us. China's workforce is 700 million people, just their workforce. Our entire population is 330 and change and growing. That disparity, we can make up some of that with technology and industrial might, but that's just the reality in the world right now. So the only way you're going to compete with that is better quality, more efficient workers and a more efficient economy, right? Because you're never going to beat those numbers out. And again, I hate to keep harping on it, but this is just the facts on the ground. Unless you bring in the best in the world, those worldwide, you know, the top talent, unless you're having an environment like that, you have no chance to compete with just the sheer numbers, do we? Well, the advantage that the, the U.S. has is that people from all over the world desperately want to move to the United States. That's not the case for China, right? Um, there is not millions of people waiting and, and working and, and doing everything they can to move to China. That's That's just not a situation that they're in. The United States has the ability to literally welcome in as many skilled workers as it wants from from every corner of the world and those are the types of people that are literally on the on the doorsteps you know banging on the doors that want to be let in um and so first of all that's that's a huge advantage that the us has that china doesn't and even if we look at the numbers at a per capita level like you can you can think about how china has you know four times the number of people as the united states but on a per capita level, you know, they're still producing more engineers by almost a factor of over two times. And so that's, the, the, I mean, you know, forget about the, the population disparities for now. They're still, they're still, you know, absolutely wrecking us or wrecking the U.S. on those metrics. Yeah, Adi Gulcha joining us from New Zealand. Is that a better way that we should be discussing this in our media and our social media and our conversation with economics instead of the buzzwords, instead of the, the culture war side of this? Should we be talking about it in a, in a positive way like that? It's like, hey, we're still America. We are America. We're the city on the hill. Everybody wants to come here. Would that be, I know it's not a policy argument, but it's an effective argument. Is that a better selling point to bring folks into this discussion that way instead of the other way where it seems to be a dead end of just saying the same thing we've been saying for 20 or 30 years when it comes to immigration? I think there's sort of two things when when you think about immigration, right? There's there's the economic aspect to it, and I don't think the discussing the economic aspect um, as as far as the media, or you know, as far as um, you know, the the public discourse is concerned, is particularly efficient, right? We can we can talk about how many STEM worker shortages, um, how how big that shortage is, how many immigrants we let in. We can use all this terminology and all this math, but ultimately, that's not what people think about when they think about immigration. They think about, well, we're going to let in, you know, a million people from China. What's that going to do to the culture? What's that going to do to my city? What's that going to do to my neighbors? What's that going to do to my school? You know, all, all those sorts of things are, are the first thing that, that people think about. They don't think about the economic impact. They think about the cultural impact because that's what affects them most closely in their day-to-day -day lives. And, 
you know, if you're you're someone who's lived in your neighborhood your entire life and you see the the demographics literally changing and becoming, you know, more and more um, uh, uh, or being filled with a higher population of foreign born people that can that can obviously, you know, not even if you're not, you know, racist or xenophobic or whatever, that can still sort of change the culture around you in a way that you're maybe not happy with. And so that's what people think of. Um, so it's it's important to stress here in the public discourse that, you know, even though the other side may seem far-fetched, the, the economic side may seem far-fetched, ultimately that's going to have a much bigger impact on you, even, even if you can't see it. Yeah. And how do we, we've talked about it on this program before. We try to take a big picture approach to these things. Uh, how, how do we bridge that cognitive dissonance? Because you have people that say, you know, we want to compete with China. We want made in America. We want to bring back manufacturing. But they like their cheap stuff at Walmart and they like their cheap stuff off Amazon. But they never put the two things together and understand that, you know, hey, economic because it's a complicated thing to explain, you know, global supply chains and economics to folks. Although I think things like covid people maybe have a little bit more of an awareness now of it, which is a good thing. How do we bridge that cognitive dissidence? Some people would call it hypocrisy of like, well, they want these cheap goods, but you're going to have to do business with China because that's the other major economic superpower. How do we start having that conversation in a productive way where people start putting two and two together in their everyday life, like you were saying? Well, there's there's sort of a, a well, going back to sort of economics, there's a comparative advantage factor here. And I think the first thing that I, I just want to stress is the, the we want American jobs um, there. That's not a zero sum game. When immigrants come here, they're not just they're not just workers. They're also consumers. So when an immigrant comes here, they need a house to live in and someone has to build that house. They their kids need to go to school. So someone needs to be a teacher and someone needs to build a school and someone needs to build a classroom. So when they come here we can't just look at one side and say, well, look, they took up a job. They're also consuming and working and doing all these things and producing value on the other side that creates more jobs. And there was a book out from Professor Leah Boston at Princeton University just um, a few few weeks ago that talked about this. Immigrants create more jobs than they than the one single job that they take up. So first of all, that that we want American jobs and that's why we want to keep out immigrants. That that argument just falls apart as soon as you you look beyond the surface. Um, and then there's, there's this sort of, um, other, other side to it is that, that we want cheap goods from China, that sort of thing. Well, that, then there's a comparative advantage, right? The reason that Chinese goods are cheaper is because labor is cheaper in China. And so ultimately if you're going to, as long as labor is cheaper in China, goods are going to keep coming from there. And ultimately, you know, if China, uh, keeps on getting a more and more skilled workforce, ultimately they're not going to have that comparative advantage and it'll be somewhere else in the world that has cheap labor. Right? There's plenty of countries in the world and China may not, maybe the manufacturing hub of today, maybe Africa tomorrow, maybe somewhere else the day after. And so it doesn't mean that we're necessarily going to lose access to cheap goods. It's just China has been for the past few decades where labor has been the most lucrative for companies in America, mostly. Yeah, Adi Gulch joining us. We're going to talk about those labor markets. We're going to talk a little bit more about China coming up. We're talking immigration with our friend from Young Voices. Uh, some real nuts and bolts economic stuff that affects us day to day. More with Adi Gulch as her tale continues right after this. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. 
Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Uh, welcome back. We're with our friend Adi Golcha. He's down in New Zealand, but we're talking immigration right here in America because that is a worldwide global issue, believe it or not. We were just talking labor markets a little bit. Um, we've been talking about China. We're going to get to China in a minute, too, because you've been doing some writing about them. Things don't always stay the same. So even though China's got all kinds of advantages, we've talked about their population advantage. Of course, we understand their dictatorial system of government. They have control over that workforce that gives them an advantage in some respects. There are other countries, uh, sometime they're projecting maybe as early as next year, India is going to surpass them in population. That's more of a friendly country. You mentioned them specifically in some of these HP1 visas that like folks from India, uh, engineers, folks like this, high strung, that there's people on the waiting list now that may die before they get their paperwork approved to come to the country. That not only seems like bad policy, it also seems a little bit unfair and if we're going to compete with an adversary like China, don't we want to have immigration towards friends like India and maybe work with them and be like, hey, these are friends and allies. They can help us compete with China. We should be lowering barriers, not increasing barriers here. Would that make sense? But that's not how the policy is, is it? Oh, absolutely not. I mean, the U.S. is shooting itself in the foot. You know, as, as soon as you start to look at the numbers, it's mind boggling, right? Nothing makes sense in terms of how Congress has handled this issue. It's all driven by political rhetoric. None of this is based on the math. And it, it, it doesn't make sense to make someone wait, um, you know, 200 years or something for to, to move from their H-1B to their green card. Not only does it wreak havoc on that that one individual's life. It discourages people, um, you know, current students in India, you know, they, their best and brightest talent um, is going to look over and say, well, do I really want to put myself through decades of, of, you know, uncertainty in trying to get a green card someday and, and always be faced with the risk that someday, you know, I might lose my job and then I'm just going to be deported back here and, and have to start over from square one. Or what if, you know, Canada, uh, your neighbor to the north, they're significantly more friendly. You go there. You, I think it takes three to five years and you be, you become a, a permanent resident there. They don't make you go through any of these hurdles. They have a simple point-based system. And as long as you meet the criteria, you get your, your um, well, their equivalent of a, of a green card. And so, you know, you want the best talent in the world, you know, in Europe, in Africa, in, in Asia, looking over and saying, well, there's all these countries in the world. There's the UK, there's Canada, there's Australia, there's New Zealand. Why why would they pick the United States if they make it this much more difficult? It's it's bad policy. Yeah, you're down in New Zealand. So just compare it and contrast it for folks, because I, I happen to have a real good friend that actually married somebody in Australia. They work in Australia. The the requirements to get a work permit in Australia, New Zealand are just they're crazy. They are very, very strict. On This is very high skilled labor. He's in the medical field. You know, he does six months on six months off because that's how his paperwork's written. You know, just compare and contrast, because I think we sometimes get in our whole of America and we don't understand in the other world. Australia, New Zealand have some of the strictest regulations in the world when it comes to immigration. Just compare and contrast it just to give us an outside perspective real quick. Yeah, well, the the way that um, immigration works in Australia and New Zealand, and um, you know, I can especially say for New Zealand, uh, I'm relatively familiar with the way the system works, is that it's a point based system. So if you want to move here, they they add up points for different things. If you studied here, you get a certain number of points. If you've been living here for three years, you get a certain number of points. If you're a young 
worker, you get a, you know, a certain number of points. And then all those points add up for all these different desirable factors. You know, where you live gives you a certain number of points. What your salary is gives you a certain number of points. And if, if based on your point total, if you're determined to be, um, you know, above the, the line where we view you as a desirable candidate, then you get your visa. Um, you, you can get your, your permanent residence and eventually your citizenship here. Um, it's a little bit different in the US. You, the, the way you guys do it, there's a strict cap on countries, right? So it, it, it doesn't really, there's no sort of point-based system. It's just every year, no more than 7% of the H-1B visas can go to any one country. So China and India have the same number of H-1B visa slots as Iceland, right? It, or, or New Zealand. We, China might have you know, 2,000 times our population, but they get the same number of H-1B visa slots. Um, and it, it just makes no sense. Um, you know, so I, I don't, I, I'm not saying that the, the point-based system is perfect. It's, it obviously isn't. Like you said, Australia and New Zealand have very, very strict requirements, um, in terms of who we, we count as being qualified, um, and meeting that point threshold. And maybe that's not at the right level, right? Um, there's, there's a whole different debate to be had there, but you know, at, at the very least, um, it, it doesn't have the, that sort of element to it where small countries and big countries all are lumped into sort of their own set of slots. Yeah, and if you're worried about geopolitics, we understand the humanitarian situation in China. We understand their human rights abuses. Why in the world would you, again, just to use the example, because they're you know comparable in size now, it, why an ally like India, who's been a long-term ally, who's been a friend to America, who has a long-standing immigration system coming to America that's well-known, why in the world would you give them the same footing when one is adversarial and one of them is a, is a developing economy that we have, and we have spent a lot of foreign aid money going to them as well. It just makes no sense geopolitically, let alone economically. Well, yeah, um, the that's that's one of the things that I've I've always found most puzzling, and that's this is not in, in no way exclusive to the United States. You know, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, they all sort of have this this intrinsic problem with their immigration system is that they they don't differentiate between where people are coming from um, in terms of requirements, right? So another aspect to this might be uh, how employers view um, education. So. Uh, U.S.-based employers might view, you know, if you're coming from the U.K., they might see a, a U.K. university and think, okay, well, that's uh, I'm going to accept this qualification. They may not think the same for India, and they may think even less of Chinese qualifications or the other way around. And, and we, we're just not differentiating based on on what countries these people are coming from, um, the requirements that we're setting for them. Um, and so there's obviously those those sorts of factors, right? Um, and, and we we have the the U.S. Congress specifically has the ability to use immigration as a foreign policy tool. Um, it, it just it, it not only has it not taken advantage of that; it's doing exactly the opposite. It's just leveling the playing field. It's it's lazy, honestly. Yeah, and you touched on it in your piece. Um, also, the folks that are more concerned with immigration that's bad, illegal immigration overstayed visas is a problem, things like this. Well, one of the ways you fix that, though, is to get the legal immigration side of it, the house in order. You talked about things like the Dreamers. You talk about the HB1 backlog. Those things all make illegal immigration worse because they gum up the system and then people start trying to find ways around it and so on and so forth. It really is a self-defeating thing to have bad immigration policy, especially if you're one of those folks that are saying, hey, we, we only want legal immigration. Well, the first step in that is to have coherent and consistent legal immigration policy, isn't it? 
Yeah, uh, absolutely. I I don't think um, I just want to preface this by saying that I, I don't think that um, the fact that any any country has a, a poorly thought out immigration policy is um, a justification for someone just saying, "Well, to hell with it. I'm just gonna gonna you know not worry about the the immigration system and just go there illegally, um, go there as a tourist and just overstay my visa." I, I don't think it. it is a justification um, that you know if you don't like a country's immigration policy, you're just going to go there illegally. That's that's a whole whole different situation. Um, but as far as um, making the problem of illegal immigration worse, well, absolutely. Um, you know, we we often hear get in line um, to illegal immigration to illegal immigrants, right? You have politicians say, well, if you want to come here legally, get in line. Well, the first step to that, you got to give them a line to get in. Absolutely, the line to get in is the problem. <sighs> I, I hate to go back to the language of it, but I have to because the way folk there's got to be a better way to discuss this, doesn't it? Is it a nomenclature problem? I know we do illegal immigration, legal immigration. The visa system's kind of unwieldy to get into a social media conversation by a normal person. I, I know you're an economist by trade. What's the better way to talk about this? Is it the human factor of it? Is it the political factor? Is it the economics of like, hey, we need more people to have a bigger economy and you know rise all boats, that kind of an argument? What's a better way to talk about this? You know, not for the professional pundits, the normal people when they're just discussing this on Facebook or Twitter or with their families or whatever. There's got to be a better way to talk about this, there, doesn't it? Well, I, I think the first first step is there's a lot of myths, there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of empty rhetoric. Um, you know, immigrants are going to come here, they're going to take your jobs. Um, you know, they're going to change the American identity, the American ethos. Um, they're going to bring their culture, their values, their religion, all, all those sorts of things um, here. And it's going to change your your culture. It's going to change your society. And maybe if you're someone who's been born and raised in America, that's something that might scare you. Um, and so firstly, there's there's those sorts of myths um, that that are have become all too pervasive in the immigration conversation. But like you said, I'm, I'm not sure there is one particular way that you can start talking about immigration that, that changes the whole conversation and that makes someone who was previously so scared of immigration suddenly open to immigration. You know, that's that's one of the things with a lot of political topics is that people believe what they believe and they're they're firm in what they believe and to and to change that often requires, you know, it's a it's a slow progression. So I, I don't think there's any instant immediate fix in terms of how we talk about this. It's just all of those myths that have been clogging up this conversation for so many decades have to start unraveling. And the only way to do that is to look at the numbers. You know, we need a speech from, you know, Joe Biden or whoever the president or the leader uh, of this in Congress is to to say, hey, here are the numbers. It's undeniable. And, you know, that's, I think, the, the most straightforward way to get through. I think you bring up an important point because immigration is like a lot of other complex issues is part of the problem. And the reason it perpetuates to be a problem is somebody will want to fix one little piece of it. So they'll want to fix, you know, the Southern border or they'll want to fix the visa system or they'll want to talk about whatever else. And they'll just want to fix that one part of the problem is. And when you have a complex problem, 
it really does need to be an all of the above more than a just this one thing, kind of an answer in most cases. Is that how you look at the immigration problem with America is that there's so many facets to this is there, there is no one fix and there's no one conversation and there's not going to be any one election or two elections that fixes this. This has got to be an all of the above concerted, probably a generational type effort to fix, isn't it? Um, I, I'm not sure that it, it does because the the first thing that, that that does is make anything exponentially more difficult to pass. You know, bills are hard enough to pass in Congress as it is, and so I I, I think that the going for sort of this one um, you know one massive bill that fixes all the issues with immigration, I I don't think you know based on the current climate that's that's going to get anywhere. There's there's going to there there's no way they're going to have the votes to to break the filibuster for that. Um, the only other thing um, that I mean incremental reforms are possible here. Um, you know the for example with the stem worker shortage one of the proposed um, pieces of legislation in this year's um, defense bill was that we remove the cap for um, skill high skilled stem workers. Um, and so we we take away that 10 20 50 year waiting period for skilled STEM workers from India and China because we need them and we want to attract more of them. And so let's stop making it more difficult for them. That was an incremental gain. It didn't fix all the all the issues th with immigration, but you know, it was a small reform. It had a decent chance of being passed. Um, and so I think, yeah, you know, maybe maybe that's, that's a broader conversation that we need to have as to why it's so hard to get bills through Congress. Um, but insofar as um, just this issue is concerned, I think our, our best friend here is incremental gains, not going for that one 5,000-page bill that's going to fix everything. No, I agree, because those 5,000-page bills are usually 4,000 pages of really bad stuff to get to the 1,000 pages that you need. To be clear, though, this isn't just STEM stuff. I know we're hitting the STEM stuff because that's kind of the obvious one, and that's what the H-1B is kind of designed for. Things like doctors, medical professionals, where they come to this country and we basically make them start from zero after, you know, 12, 14, 15 years of training, things like that. Does America, I think we have this, put your economist hat on for a second. We still talk in our politics, Joe Biden did it this week. He talks about, well, we're going to bring back manufacturing. We're not a manufacturing economy anymore. We're a service sector economy. Is part of it America doesn't understand their own economy right now. Maybe we still think of the economy as it was in the past and not as it is in the year of our Lord 2022. Is that part of the problem here too? And then we project that on something like immigration and those culture things you talk about. And it doesn't match up because it's not an updated version of what's really going on right now. Is that part of the problem here too? Yeah. Well, I mean, absolutely. That's, that's part of the problem when you have a president give a speech, you know, and this is, this isn't, this isn't a Joe Biden thing. This is something Donald Trump would do as well. You go to a, a manufacturing town and say, well, we're going to bring back all the manufacturing jobs here and we're going to bring back the coal mining jobs here. Well, the only way the government can do that is by incentivizing it. And I don't think that's, that's the right path for any government to go down where it's looking at, you know, uh, an industry is getting more efficient. It's becoming, you know, it's cutting costs, it's becoming better for consumers, it's innovating. And you go to them and you give them an incentive to, to basically, you know, crush all the progress that they've made, crush all the advancements and say, well, we're going to do it the old way because the old way meant that you get, you know, more workers. There's, there's been countless innovations like this, right? Um, we had text-to-speech software that replaced a lot of typists. It, it wouldn't make sense for the government to say, well, every time you fire a typist and you decide to use text-to-speech software, we're going to fine you so much that it doesn't make sense for you to use text-to-speech software anymore. You, you have to use a typist. Well, I mean, yeah, for it, it might fix the problem in the short term. You're, some typists might keep their jobs, but in the long term, that's that's not the direction you want to go in where the government is picking and choosing what jobs it wants to keep. Yeah, no, and you don't have to convince me. I'm a West Virginian. I know the coal mines were over before most other people did. They they knew. 
everybody always asks me, it's like, what are the coal miners? They're like, no, they knew, they knew 50 years before the rest of the country that it was over. Just, you don't have to tell them. Uh, Adi Golcha, outstanding stuff. We're going to link to all of this. His full piece on this immigration problem is in Counterpunch. We're going to link to it. Read the whole thing for yourself. A lot of good linked data points in there you need to read through. Uh, we're going to have you back again because you've also been writing about China. We'll get to that some other time. Let folks know until we see you on Hertel again where they can follow you, what you have going on, how they can keep up with you, my friend. Well, um, the best place to follow me is on Instagram um, at Economics Review. Um, that's that's my podcast and on Twitter at Adi Golcha. Yeah, and we'll link to all his pages. He's also on the Young Voices pages. He's an AA, so he's the very first one because it's alphabetical. So he's real easy to find. Uh, great podcast. Make sure you check that out as well. Adi Golcha, thank you so much for the time, sir. Great information. Enjoyed talking to you. We'll do it again real, real soon, my friend. Thanks so much, Andrew. Looking forward to it. Thank you, sir. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. They'll do it for her to tell a little different episode today. Uh, but thank you so much for joining us. Make sure wherever you're watching or listening, whether it's on the YouTube channel, the Facebook feed for our radio partner, Big Talker, uh, any of the podcasting platforms, please make sure you like, subscribe, or follow, and leave a comment and a rating if they give you the option to. It's really important for us because it lets other people know and let those platforms know that you're watching and listening. Because if you ain't watching and listening, we ain't got nobody to talk to. This is a joint effort. We appreciate you greatly. We'd love to hear from you. Hertelshow at gmail.com. Hertelshow on the Twitter. Our guest Twitter is always down below. Also, latest podcast on communism, Deep Dive with our friend Amanda Griffiths. That's up twice on Sunday. The review show, that's up. We've got 39 of the long-form podcasts now, plus the daily radio show that you just finished watching or listening. We'll do it again tomorrow. So until we see you again, wherever you are, across the street or around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you're well-fed. We'll talk to you real soon for more Herd Tell. All the music on Herd Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com.